Even though the Gospel of the Holy Twelve is so similar to our stories, there is nuances within it that make it contradictory to the Christian tradition and faith as a whole. Well, friends, welcome back to the Spiritual Nomad podcast and YouTube channel. My name is Luke, and today we are talking about the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. Let's let that zoom in for a second for those watching on YouTube. The Gospel of the Holy Twelve is what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, could this be a gospel that gives us a more expanded view of the life of Jesus? Could this be a gospel that gives us a peek more in depth to the person and work and life of this figure of Jesus, this incarnation of God that has literally transformed and changed our world. The life of Jesus, whether you like it or not, has transformed the world 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the face of this earth. Uh, most people believe that he actually existed as a person. Even people that don't believe in his divinity believe that he was actually a person. A uh, very small minority of people believe that he didn't exist at all. If that's you, totally fine. Let me know in the comments. Uh, some theories or some video links to some far out stuff to look at that. But from my research and from people that I roll with, most people believe that Jesus actually lived on earth. He lived in the ancient Near East. And uh, at least if he wasn't God and if he wasn't divine, at least he had such an incredible impact that it literally affects the way that we live life today. We have changed everything around the life of Jesus. Our calendars are set up around the life of Jesus. Much of our thought and practice, especially if you live in America, whether you like it or not, your life has some level of dictation by the life of Jesus. And for many of us, the only way that we know about the life of Jesus is through the Bible, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and so what we have the, well, the four gospels of the Bible, the three synoptic are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John being a little bit different in nature, but we only really understand the life of Jesus through the Bible, through what's been given to us, um, by the authorities, the religious authorities who came up with the canonization of scripture. Uh, really this began back in the 300s. The council of Nicaea is really the place where they began to understand what is going to be the Bible. Uh, after the Roman Emperor Constantine decided to make the Roman Empire Christian. Um, you know, we go from Christians being persecuted and fed to lions to now all of a sudden being people of prestige uh, in the empire. And so with an empire adopting a religion, a spirituality, a, a mode of thinking about uh, eternal things, um, they needed to define their doctrine and they needed to really hone in what books were going to inform their dogmas. And that's where the canonization of scripture comes in, to bring about a singular universal book uh, of documents that would define what we would believe to be true and not true um, about Jesus, about Christianity, about now the new uh, religion of the empire. And so they did this whole uh, process of councils in different places, but in particular, the Council of Nicaea, even though a lot of Christian scholars don't like to admit this, this is where they did in fact say, this is what's in and this is what's out. 
And this began this process of canonization. We didn't have the final canon of the scriptures that we have today until much later, almost more than a thousand years later to be exact. But pretty much for the most part, our New Testament got its best real understanding back in the 300s. And that's where these four gospels became to be the ones that we would quote unquote accept as the empire to inform us about the life of Jesus. Now, there were many gospels. Gospel means good news. As a matter of fact, uh, evangelical evangelion means the, the proclaimer of good news. It doesn't mean somebody who voted for a particular president a few years ago. Uh, evangelical literally just means a proclamation of good news. This is actually a Roman phrase. This is something when a, uh, a decree would go out from the emperor, there would go before them uh, an evangelist to go into the city and to proclaim the good news of the emperor. So it's literally a hijacked term from a, uh, a Roman very Roman uh, Empire culture, uh, someone that would go and be an evangelist to tell about the good news. They literally co-opted that in Christianity to tell of the good news of a new sort of king, a different emperor, someone who ruled a kingdom not of this world, but yet was active in this world. And so that's where we get evangelical, evangelion, uh, an evangelist, that's where that comes from. And so there was many documents about uh, this good news. There was many proclamations that different people wrote about this good news of a different sort of king, this life of a uh, person of Jesus, the person that was Jesus, and what he did and how he lived and what he came to do and what he accomplished. And many of these gospels were written by people um, who were people who rolled with Jesus. We have uh, the, you know, the Gospel of Judas. Mary Magdalene wrote some things as well. Um, we have the Gospel of Peter. We have other gospels from people who would have been eyewitnesses to the life and work of Jesus. And so the way that ancient writings go, though, makes things complicated. Because unlike today, uh, you have a writer. If I were to write a book, I would say that the author is Luke Bricker. And if you then took my book and put your name on it, that would be plagiarism. Uh, and so that really wasn't a, a thing back then. They would take these oral traditions, because that's really what it was, before anything was written down, people were mostly illiterate, and people would take these oral traditions and then they would compile the stories of those traditions and attribute them to a particular apostle. And so we don't know for sure, uh, even the documents that we have in the Bible, we don't know for sure that Mark actually wrote Mark. Uh, we don't know for sure if John actually wrote John. As a matter of fact, this will blow your mind, side note. It's actually said uh, by some scholars who don't have a religious bias. You'll note that religious scholars have a religious bias to keep authors the same for obvious reasons, right? They need to keep things in orthodoxy. But you look at someone like a Bart Ehrman, uh, who I think is absolutely respectable uh, scholar from the University of North Carolina in religion, and he says that the author, amongst many others, agree that the author of John, uh, of the Gospel of John, is different from the author of Revelation, where John wrote the book of Revelation. And so, uh, you know, Orthodox Christians believe that John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Um, 
other scholars say that these are actually different authors and, and I'd go probably to agree with them in that because they, they are so different in so many ways. And the way that gospels worked back then is that it was oral tradition, stories around campfires, and eventually what they would do is they would compile them and again, attribute them to someone who is noteworthy. Uh, because people just aren't going to listen to anyone. People needed to have a, uh, a, a reliable uh, name attributed to the gospel. So people who would hear this being passed down from, let's say, John's version of the story of Jesus, they would compile all these stories and then they would uh, put the name John on them or Mark or Matthew. And you wonder how these gospels are so similar it's like, well, there's probably one master gospel. There's probably one master text that everybody took that from. And if you are familiar with Christian studies at all, we are told that Mark is the earliest gospel, even though it's the shortest gospel, and that that is sort of the rubric that really informs all the other gospels, that Mark is the oldest one. And that's probably true for, for the Bible, uh, for the the books that we have in the canon. Uh, that's probably true. Um, you know, we see Matthew then expound on that more. If it was actually Matthew or not, that, that's up to interpretation. Luke, we see that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, but you gotta know Luke never actually met Jesus. He never knew Jesus. Paul never actually met Jesus in the flesh either. Uh, so Luke used a document and then brought in sources from other oral traditions to craft and shape his gospel, which he presented to uh, Theophilus, who was an overseer at the time, who was curious about all of the events that had taken place about Jesus and what is going on with this new group called Christians. And so Luke, being a doctor, he compiled uh, Luke and Acts to give to Theophilus as a gift um, an educated, well-educated man as a gift to another well-educated man to sort of explain what's been happening. And as a part of this expedition, Luke traveled around with Paul. So Acts, the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles written by Luke, uh, you know, a lot of that Luke was around for. Uh, but the gospel of Luke, much of that is just oral tradition that was passed down. Um, these people would have been extremely young age whenever Jesus, um, you know, would have died uh, on the cross. So they died at a much later age. At any rate, uh, the gospel of the Holy 12, where does this come into play then? We don't see the gospel of the Holy 12 as one of the apocryphal books. So like I said, we, we chose what went into the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we discarded a lot of other gospels, the gospel of Peter, you know, obviously Mary Magdalene's gospel is going to be thrown out because she's a woman uh, <laughs> and we were in a very patriarchal society. Um, but we see a lot of these other gospels thrown out. Um, the gospel of the Holy 12 is not one of those apocryphal texts that were thrown out. It was unknown. People didn't actually know that the gospel of the Holy 12 existed. And these other gospels went through many different hands before they arrived to what would become people who are Christian scribes. Um, and what you should also know as well, really quick, before we jump in to the Gospel of the Holy 12 and its story, uh, you should also know that, uh, that they would have these margin notes, 
literally they would have this, this text that they would be translating and in the margins on the side, they'd have all of these notes from scribes. And then over time, they would sort of piece things and put things together. And that's why you even read in your Bible, it'll have a little footnote and it'll say, in some earliest manuscripts, this part is left out. And it's because, well, this was a story that they later collected from supposedly a reliable source and they put it in the margin. And later on, they didn't quite know what to do with it. Should they include it? Should they not include it? Where does it go? I don't know. We'll just put it in here, you know? And so the woman who gets caught in adultery, for instance, is something that was in the foot in this uh, margin. And so eventually they decided, well, let's just include it and put a footnote under it. Okay. So we see this happening a lot in uh, the Bible is things that are in the margins find their way in. And sometimes there's errors and this isn't really a video to talk about that, but uh, Bart Ehrman is an extremely uh, incredible resource if you want to learn about how the New Testament came to be. He has a, uh, a whole course that you can listen to on Audible, um, a whole, you know, I forget how many part course, it's like 10 hours of how the New Testament came to be. It's incredible, you should check it out. But <laughs> all this time into this video, the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. So if the Gospel of the Holy Twelve was not an apocryphal text, if it wasn't something that the Council of Nicaea thrown out, where was the Gospel of the Holy Twelve? Was it something that was made up later? Was it something that someone just sort of had an idea about and created from their imagination? Possibly, but it could also be true. And like many things that are under control, they're going to want to make a conspiracy about it if it contradicts the mainstream narrative. And so I'm not here to talk about conspiracy theories, but there is conspiracy around the gospel of the Holy 12 that was this really a true gospel or was this really a creation um, from this Reverend Owsley? And so that's who wrote it, Reverend uh, uh, G.J. Owsley. And he wrote this uh, based on the original Aramaic scroll. So let me tell you the, the, the legend about this, and then you can decide for yourself if it is true or if it is not true. The legend of the Gospel of the Holy Twelve is that the actual Apostle John wrote the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. That John was in Rome awaiting to be sentenced to Patmos, where he would then write the book of Revelation and writes this gospel of Jesus Christ, whom he had spent many years with. And John wrote this gospel and then gave it to one of his direct disciples and told his disciple to take this scroll to Tibet. It says that then that disciple took this scroll, took the gospel written in Aramaic to Tibet, to a lama and delivered this. This lama then kept the gospel, read the gospel, and preserved the gospel in the monastery. Then in the 1800s, a traveler who was coming found this gospel. He, well, he found the monastery, and the lama who was there at the time said, I know all about your Jesus, and began to share with him the parables and the stories that was familiar to that traveler. That traveler then was able to see this scroll written in Aramaic and said, and asked for permission from the Lama to take this scroll to the Vatican because this would be one of the most purest 
scrolls. This would be one of the most purest accounts of the life of Jesus because it would have been written by a direct disciple of Jesus, given to a direct disciple of that disciple, and then preserved in that monastery for all of these years. So it would have had not many hands to change through and would have really kept to its original authenticity. That Lama said, of course, if we can help contribute to Christianity, to the, the amazing tradition of Jesus, absolutely take this and uh, take it to the Vatican and have them include it into the canon of scripture. It was taken to the Vatican then in I think 1870, if memory serves me correct. Uh, and then it was taken there and but on the way from Tibet to the Vatican, to Rome, it was translated from Aramaic into Latin and that way it could be read before the Vatican. And so when presented, they had the original scroll in Aramaic and then the copied version in Latin. And they said, incredible, this is amazing. What an amazing find to find such a preserved gospel that matches and mirrors what we have in our Bibles so well. Let's hear this gospel. They began to read this gospel in Latin and very quickly, uh, were discouraged because even though the gospel of the Holy 12 is so similar to our stories, there is nuances within it that make it contradictory to the Christian tradition and faith as a whole. For instance, and I'm going to start a series just sort of comparing and contrasting uh, things from the gospel of the Holy 12 with, uh, you know, the, the canonical gospels. But if you look at uh, in the beginning, when Jesus uh, was born, the Immaculate Conception, in our Bibles, you know, we have in Matthew and in Luke, where we see that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that Joseph was not participatory in the conception of Mary. Well, in the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, it says that, that the Holy Spirit gave them both permission to engage in the act of sex, to bring Jesus into the world that it's, it's really sort of a ordained premarital sex. So clearly, right there from the get-go, this is going to absolutely undermine the Catholic teaching of Mary, the doctrine of Mary. This is going to undermine the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Jesus being born of a virgin without Joseph being involved in it. And it's ever so slight. And so in another video, we're going to get more in-depth about that. But just like that, all throughout the Gospel, it follows so much of what we have known to be true in our Gospels, but there's just some nuance. There's just a little bit of difference. There's a little bit more explanation at some places, which make it to me be more like the director's cut of the Gospel. It's the elongated version. It's the a little bit more detailed version. And it would make sense why we would neuter that information to keep with our control and traditions within Christianity. And so what I'm uh, submitting to you is that this, if that le legend is true, if John really did write this gospel, give it to a disciple, and from that disciple it was taken to Tibet and preserved in a monastery for all of those years, it would make sense that then the Vatican would not see it uh, as valuable and would put it in their secret hidden library where supposedly it exists to this day. Uh, it would make sense that legend would be true because, of course, they're not going to want to disrupt and disturb all that they have built for these thousands of years um, based on a, a little alternative reading 
of the Gospels. Some other people then say that the Gospel of the Holy Twelve was just made up, that this is because it does go along so much with the Gospels that we have in the Bible. People say that it's just somebody's imagination, somebody's dream, somebody's idea of how they would shift it and change it. Um, and that it's basically just, just a made up narrative and that there's really no historical evidence for this. But I would say that the reason that there's not any real historical evidence is because it's been so well preserved, because it was hidden in that monastery. And so we don't have any real true deep history of it because so quickly it was put into a place of preservation. So I don't know. I mean, that's just my opinion. My thought is, is that it's a real gospel. My thought is, is that of course people in control and power would want to, you know, not allow this information to get out. But I'm curious what you think about it. I'm curious what you think about the gospel of the Holy 12. Do a little research on it. You know, uh, Google around. I will say that there are some people out there that they try to debunk it, um, you know, saying that it was just this guy's sort of opinion and dream. But I would argue that this actually gives us a wider lens into the person of Jesus. Uh, one last thing for its validity is that it has a lot of the same values of this group called the Essenes. And the Essenes was a separatist group they lived outside of the city in the wilderness, away from all of the hustle bustle, away from all of the religious rhetoric of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were a Jewish separatist group who had uh, very particular rituals like that of baptism and cleansing. They had a lot of pools in their communes. You can even see to this day, uh, you can go and watch some videos on YouTube elsewhere where they look at some old ancient ruins of Essene establishments and there's many pools. It's all about uh, the water and beginning and getting cleansed from your, uh, your worldly self. And so we see this as John the Baptist, right? He baptizes with water. Uh, we see Jesus, he baptizes uh, with water and the spirit. We even see Jesus whenever he is killed and his heart is stabbed, that water and blood flow out of this. Um, there is a lot of uh, evidence in the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, again, for the values of the Essenes, like vegetarianism. Uh, Jesus uh, absolutely uh, despises any sort of bloodshed. He forbids any of his disciples to eat meat. Um, and he actually, in this gospel, befriends animals. It, it says that there was uh, someone who was trying to kill a lion, and uh, Jesus basically takes this beast of the lion, and the lion actually starts cuddling with him, and these people are so mind-blown that they believe what he has to say. Um, Jesus befriends all creatures, and so Essenes were very much a uh, respecting of creation and purification of creation sort of group. And so uh, with that, it's said that Jesus likely was a part of the Essenes. And what he did that was so monumental is the Essenes, again, were a separatist group. And Jesus took that separatist idea and philosophy right down into the city center. And he brought the values and the traditions of the Essenes as a prophet to the city center. And uh, we noticed in our canonical gospels, there's no mention of the Essenes. There's only mention of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, guess what? 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests, they were all the enemies of the Essenes because the Essenes thought that they were all corrupt and crazy and in bed with the government and all of this, that, and the third. And they were, uh, but that's why they separated themselves. They were a separatist group. But you don't hear mention of the Essenes. The Essenes were extremely popular in the ancient Near East. And you don't hear mention of them as being any sort of enemy or opposition because it was written by an Essene group because Jesus was likely an Essene. And his cousin, John the Baptist, was likely an Essene. That's why he lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and wild honey. He didn't eat meat. He didn't eat lamb like all of the other Jewish people would have done. He didn't participate in all of those rituals because he was a part of this separatist group called the Essenes who lived in the wilderness and lived a very minimalist life. That's why he only had one loin cloth on him eating locusts and wild honey. And Jesus, after traveling around to Egypt and even to the Far East, why he came back and his own cousin said, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he had not seen Jesus in many, many years because Jesus had been traveling the world learning uh, from all these different traditions. And that is affirmed in the Gospel of the Holy Twelve, says that Jesus went back to Egypt. Jesus uh, learned all sorts of things. I'll digress because this video is getting quite long. Uh, but my suggestion to you is to get a copy of the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. I'll put a link in the show notes below, whether you're listening to this on a podcast or watching on YouTube. It's like six bucks on Amazon. If you don't believe in Amazon and you don't like Jeff Bezos, I understand. Uh, but go find it on eBay somewhere. It'll probably be a little bit more costly there. But uh, pick yourself up a copy. It reads a lot like the King James Version because it's not been amended since the 1800s, late 1800s. But uh, get a copy of the Gospel of Holy 12 and uh, we're going to start doing some videos contrasting some of the information from uh, the canonical texts into uh, and with and holding them up against the gospel of the Holy 12 and seeing some nuance and some difference in the implication of that. So uh, this video feels very information oriented. I feel a lot like a uh, sort of just like a robot or a teacher, uh, you know, just transmitting info to you. So uh, this might not be the normal sort of vibe of the uh, podcast, but I really just want to articulate this to you. This really is just giving information that's in me over to you. Um, so that's what this podcast video has been about. And um, I hope that you join me for more podcasts and videos about the gospel, the Holy 12, because I think this is a preserved document that gives us a more expansive view and a, even, I'd argue, better lens into who Jesus really was and the life that he really lived and what he really believed in. So uh, leave a comment below, share this with a friend, and uh, join me on the next video where we begin to look at this very beginning portion of John the Baptist and the Immaculate Conception. Have a wonderful day, friends. See you on the next video.